Chapter 12 of Journey to the Center of the Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Donnelly. Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. Chapter 12. The huge volcano, which was the first stage of our daring experiment, is about 5,000 feet high. Snaefels is the termination of a long range of volcanic mountains of a different character to the system of the island itself. One of its peculiarities is its two huge pointed summits. From whence we started, it was impossible to make out the real outlines of the peak against the gray field of sky. All we could distinguish was a vast dome of white, which fell downwards from the head of the giant. The commencement of the great undertaking filled me with awe. Now that we had actually started, I began to believe in the reality of the undertaking. Our party formed quite a procession. We walked in single file, preceded by Hans, the imperturbable eider-duck hunter. He calmly led us by narrow paths where two persons could by no possibility walk abreast. Conversation was wholly impossible we had all the more opportunity to reflect and admire the awful grandeur of the scene around. Beyond the extraordinary basaltic wall of the fjord of Stapi, we found ourselves making our way through fibrous turf, over which grew a scanty vegetation of grass. The residuum of the ancient vegetation of the swampy peninsula, the vast mass of this combustible, the field of which as yet is utterly unexplored, would suffice to warm Iceland for a whole century. This mighty turf pit, measured from the bottom of certain ravines, is often not less than 70 feet deep, and presents to the eye the view of successive layers of black, burned-up, rocky detritus, separated by thin streaks of porous sandstone. The grandeur of the spectacle was undoubted, as well as its arid and deserted air. As a true nephew of the great Professor Hardwig, and despite my preoccupation and doleful fears of what was to come, I observed with great interest the vast collection of mineralogical curiosities spread out before me in this vast museum of natural history. Looking back to my recent studies, I went over and thought the whole geological history of Iceland. This extraordinary and curious island must have made its appearance from out of the great world of waters at a comparatively recent date. Like the coral islands of the Pacific, it may, for aught we know, be still rising by slow and imperceptible degrees. If this really be the case, its origin can be attributed to only one cause, that of the continued action of subterranean fires. This was a happy thought. If so, if this were true, away with theories of Sir Humphrey Davy, away with the authority of the parchment of Arne Sackmissen, the wonderful pretenses to discover on the part of my uncle and to our journey. All must end in smoke. Charmed with the idea, I began more carefully to look about me. 
A serious study of the soil was necessary to negative or confirm my hypothesis. I took in every item of what I saw, and I began to comprehend the succession of phenomena which had preceded its formation. Iceland, being absolutely without sedimentary soil, is composed exclusively of volcanic tuffa, that is to say, of an agglomeration of stones and of rocks of a porous texture. Long before the existence of volcanoes, it was composed of a solid body of massive trap rock lifted bodily and slowly out of the sea by the action of the centrifugal force at work in the earth. The internal fires, however, had not as yet burst their bounds and flooded the exterior cake of Mother Earth with hot and raging lava. My readers must excuse this brief and somewhat pedantic geological lecture, but it is necessary to the complete understanding of what follows. At a later period in the world's history, a huge and mighty fissure must reasoning by analogy have been dug diagonally from the southwest to the northeast of the island, through which by degrees flowed the volcanic crust. The great and wondrous phenomenon then went on without violence. The outpouring was enormous, and the seething, fused matter ejected from the bowels of the earth spread slowly and peacefully in the form of vast level plains, or what are called mamelons or mounds. It was at this epoch that the rocks called feldspars, cyanites, and porphyries appeared. But as a natural consequence of this overflow, the depth of the island increased. It can readily be believed what an enormous quantity of elastic fluids were piled up within its center when at last it afforded no other openings after the process of cooling the crust had taken place. At length, a time came when despite the enormous thickness and weight of the upper crust, the mechanical forces of the combustible gases below became so great that they actually upheaved the weighty back and made for themselves huge and gigantic shafts. Hence the volcanoes, which suddenly arose through the upper crust, and next the craters, which burst forth at the summit of these new creations. It will be seen that the first phenomena in connection with the formation of the island were simply eruptive. To these, however, shortly succeeded the volcanic phenomena. Through the newly formed openings escaped the marvelous mass of basaltic stones with which the plain we were now crossing was covered. We were trampling our way over heavy rocks of dark gray color, which, while cooling, had been molded into six-sided prisms. In the back distance, we could see a number of flattened cones, which formerly were so many fire-vomiting mouths. After the basaltic eruption was appeased and set at rest, the volcano, the force of which increased with that of the extinct craters, gave free passage to the fiery overflow of lava and to the mass of cinders and pumice stone now scattered over the sides of the mountain, like disheveled hair on the shoulders of a Bashante. Here, in a nutshell, I had the whole history of the phenomena from which Iceland arose, 
all take their rise in the fierce action of interior fires, and to believe that the central mass did not remain in a state of liquid fire, white-hot, was simply and purely madness. This being satisfactorily proved, QED, what insensate folly to pretend to penetrate into the interior of the mighty earth. This mental lecture, delivered to myself while proceeding on a journey, did me good. I was quite reassured as to the fate of our enterprise, and therefore went, like a brave soldier mounting a bristling battery, to the assault of old Sneffels. As we advanced, the road became every moment more difficult. The soil was broken and dangerous, the rocks broke and gave way under our feet, and we had to be scrupulously careful in order to avoid dangerous and constant falls. Hans advanced as calmly as if he had been walking over Salisbury Plain. Sometimes he would disappear behind huge blocks of stone, and we momentarily lost sight of him. There was a little period of anxiety, and then there was a shrill whistle just to tell us where to look for him. Occasionally he would take it into his head to stop to pick up lumps of rock and silently pile them up into small heaps in order that we might not lose our way on our return. He had no idea of the journey we were about to undertake. At all events, the precaution was a good one, though how utterly useless and unnecessary that I must not anticipate. Three hours of terrible fatigue walking incessantly, had only brought us to the foot of the great mountain. This will give some notion of what we had still to undergo. Suddenly, however, Hans cried a halt, that is, he made signs to that effect, and a summary kind of breakfast was laid out on the lava before us. My uncle, who now was simply Professor Hardwig, was so eager to advance that he bolted his food like a greedy clown. This halt for refreshment was also a halt for repose. The professor was therefore compelled to wait the good pleasure of his imperturbable guide, who did not give the signal for departure for a good hour. The three Icelanders, who were as taciturn as their comrade, did not say a word, but went on eating and drinking very quietly and soberly. From this, our first real stage, we began to ascend the slopes of the Sneffels volcano, its magnificent snowy nightcap, as we began to call it by an optical delusion, very common in mountains, appeared to me to be close at hand, and yet how many long weary hours must elapse before we reached the summit. What unheard of fatigue must we endure? The stones on the mountainside, held together by no cement of soil, bound together by no roots or creeping herbs, gave way continually under our feet and went rushing below into the plains like a series of small avalanches. In certain places the sides of this stupendous mountain were at an angle so steep that it was impossible to climb upwards and we were compelled to get around these obstacles as best we might. Those who understand alpine climbing will comprehend our difficulties. Often we were obliged to help each other along by means of our climbing poles. I must say this for my uncle, 
that he stuck as close to me as possible. He never lost sight of me, and on many occasions his arm supplied me with firm and solid support. He was strong, wiry, and apparently insensible to fatigue. Another great advantage with him was that he had the innate sentiment of equilibrium, for he never slipped or failed in his steps. The Icelanders, though heavily loaded, climbed with the agility of mountaineers. Looking up every now and then at the height of the great volcano of Snifels, it appeared to me wholly impossible to reach to the summit on that side. At all events, if the angle of the inclination did not speedily change. Fortunately, after an hour of unheard of fatigues and of gymnastic exercises that would have been trying to an acrobat, we came to a vast field of ice, which wholly surrounded the bottom of the cone of the volcano. The natives called it the tablecloth, probably from some such reason as the dwellers in the Cape of Good Hope call their mountain Table Mountain and their roads Table Bay. Here, to our mutual surprise, we found an actual flight of stone steps, which wonderfully assisted our ascent. This singular flight of steps was, like everything else, volcanic. It had been formed by one of those torrents of stones cast up by the eruptions of which the Icelandic name is Stina. If this singular torrent had not been checked in its descent by the peculiar shape of the flanks of the mountain, it would have swept into the sea and would have formed new islands. Such as it was, it served us admirably. The abrupt character of the slopes momentarily increased, but these remarkable stone steps, a little less difficult than those of the Egyptian pyramids, were the one simple natural means by which we were enabled to proceed. About seven in the morning of that day, after having clambered up two thousand of these rough steps, we found ourselves overlooking a kind of spur of projection of the mountain, a sort of buttress upon which the cone-like crater, properly so called, leaned for support. The ocean lay beneath us at a depth of more than 3,200 feet, a grand and mighty spectacle. We had reached the region of eternal snows. The cold was keen, searching, and intense. The wind blew with extraordinary violence. I was utterly exhausted. My worthy uncle, the professor, saw clearly that my legs refused further service, and that, in fact, I was utterly exhausted. Despite his hot and feverish impatience, he decided with a sigh upon a halt. He called the Eiderduck hunter to his side, that worthy however, shook his head. Olfenfor was his sole-spoken reply. It appears, says my uncle with a woe-begone look, that we must go higher. He then turned to Hans and asked him to give him some reason for this decisive response. Miss Tour, replied the guide. Ja, Miss Tour. Yes, the Mistour, cried one of the Icelandic guides in a terrified tone. It was the first time he had spoken. What does this mysterious word signify? I anxiously inquired. Look, said my uncle. I looked down upon the plain below, and I saw a vast 
prodigious volume of pulverized pumice stone, of sand, of dust rising to the heavens in the form of a mighty waterspout. It resembled the fearful phenomenon of a similar character known to the travelers in the desert of the Great Sahara. The wind was driving it directly upwards that side of Snifles of which we were perched. This opaque veil standing up between us and the sun projected a deep shadow on the flanks of the mountain. If this sand spout broke over us, we must all be infallibly destroyed, crushed in its fearful embraces. This extraordinary phenomenon, very common when the wind shakes the glaciers and sweeps over the arid plains, is in the Icelandic tongue called mistur. Hostigt, hostigt, cried our guide. Now I certainly knew nothing of Danish, but I thoroughly understood that the, his gestures were meant to quicken us. The guide turned rapidly in a direction which would take us to the back of the crater, all the while ascending slightly. We followed rapidly, despite our excessive fatigue. A quarter of an hour later, Hans paused to enable us to look back. The mighty whirlwind of sand was spreading up the slope of the mountain to the very spot where we had proposed to halt. Huge stones were caught up, cast into the air, and thrown about as during an eruption. We were happily a little out of the direction of the wind, and therefore out of reach of danger. But for the precaution and knowledge of our guide, our dislocated bodies, our crushed and broken limbs, would have been cast to the wind like dust from some unknown meteor. Hans, however, did not think it prudent to pass the night on the bare side of the cone. We therefore continued our journey in a zigzag direction. The 1,500 feet which remained to be accompanied took us at least five hours. The turnings and windings, the no thoroughfares, the marches and marches, turned that insignificant distance into at least three leagues. I never felt such misery, fatigue, and exhaustion in my life. I was ready to faint from hunger and cold. The rarefied air at the same time painfully acted upon my lungs. At last, when I thought myself at my last gasp, about eleven at night, being in that region quite dark, we reached the summit of Mount Snifles. It was in an awful mood of mind that despite my fatigue before I descended into the crater which was to shelter us for the night, I paused to behold the sun rise at midnight on the very day of its lowest declination, and enjoyed the spectacle of its ghastly pale rays cast upon the isle which lay sleeping at our feet. I no longer wondered at people traveling all the way from England to Norway to behold this magical and wondrous spectacle. End of chapter 12. Recording by Chris Donnelly, Devon, Alberta, Canada.